This morning is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, it's actually not Christmas yet. Do you know that? <laughs> oh, this is going to be a good day. I can already tell. See, if you guys would just talk the way that she is, it'd be so much more fun, you know? Um, and so what happens in Advent, we've been talking about this. If you're new to Advent, Advent is the, the four weeks, the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. And for us, it's important as Christians because it's a time when we kind of embrace the, how would you put that, the, the uncomfortable part of Christmas, which is waiting. And we take this time in these four weeks and we kind of begin to kind of stretch out this time. We, we make the busiest time of the year stretch a little bit, right? Because it just comes and goes so quickly. And so for us, we kind of try to put ourselves in the shoes of Israel. And so for these four Sundays, we try our best to understand what it was like for Israel to wait for the Messiah for so long. And the reason that we do that is because we understand as Christians, we're actually waiting for that same Messiah. We're not waiting for him to be born. We're waiting for him to return. And what happens in this season is we take time and we light these candles. We have four blue candles, but I'm going to try to light without lighting the house on fire. And so each one of these, it represents one of the Sundays of Advent. And as we do this with light, the reason that you use light is because to use light means that you're acknowledging darkness. You know, a candle is only useful whenever you need to have light to see what? To see anything, correct? If it is bright outside with these lights in here, I mean, how useful are these candles right now? Sweetheart? <laughs> Not at all, correct? We don't need them, right? But at Advent, we acknowledge the darkness. Yes, we celebrate the light, but we acknowledge the fact that we need the light because it is a dark world. And even though we kind of fix our eyes on Israel and how dark the world was there, as we kind of engage in their stories, we kind of, you know, it's almost like you kind of begin to uh, submerge yourself in the reality that they had then. It reminds us of how dark the world is now, correct? Would you guys say the world is a perfect, beautiful place? This is going to be so good. We wish it was, correct? You know, I mean, um, just like this morning, there are families here that, you know, we are supposed to be celebrating. We're supposed to be extremely happy. Most of us are. But there are families here this morning who are not bright. They're not cheery. They're not full of, you know, hope and joy. And right now they're full of pain and frustration because their loved ones are not here. Ones who were here with us in the past are not here with us now. Ones who were around the tree with us in the past are not around the tree with us here today, and it causes pain. But in this, there's something valuable in this, and it's the reminder that this world is what it is. We still celebrate the light because we live in a world that still has what? Darkness. And so uh, tonight at midnight, what we'll be doing is we will finally light the white candle which is the Christ candle. It's the symbol of the ultimate hope. And what we'll do tonight, we'll light that candle first, and the first individual will come up to the candle with their candle, and it'll light theirs, and they'll begin to pass it. And it's a symbol of how this world is still full of darkness, but what we do is from the hope in Christ, it ignites the hope in us. And we take that hope as his you know, disciples, the ambassadors, the messengers of God, and we take the hope in Christ, and we pass it from neighbor to neighbor to neighbor. And this is what the Christian purpose is. And so tonight we're going to kind of remind ourselves of both realities. 
that the world is dark, but that there is hope in the world. Now, um, who has ever heard people who just don't like Christmas? Come on, raise your hand. Like, you know them, right? Okay, how about this? How about the Christian family who just hates Christmas? That's a pagan holiday, right? Have you guys ever heard that before? Putting them pagan trees in your house. Jesus wasn't even born in December. Correct? All of that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. But I still love Christmas. I still love Christmas trees. We as Christians are good at this one thing. It's called subversion. Have you guys ever heard that word subversion? What you, what you do when you subvert something, you take something which has meaning and you sneak into it and you kind of hijack it, you steal it. And something that had one meaning now has a different meaning. Now this piece of wood, this cross that was a symbol of fear and death and torment, right? And control and oppression by the Romans. It was their symbol they used to control the world. They told the world, if you come against Caesar, the cross is what you will get. And we had this way of sneaking into this symbol of fear and and depression, and we steal it. And now, the symbol of the cross means what? If you come to the Lord Jesus, you will get the cross, which is now a symbol of what? Hope and healing. We, We like to steal things. That's what Christians do. We steal things. We take a Yule tree, which was, you know, created to celebrate the sun, the winter solstice, and we kind of sneak into it, and we kind of steal it. And so what used to celebrate the sun now celebrates the Son of God. What used to kind of point up to the bigness and the vastness of the world, now we have this tree that leads to one point, and we put it at the, at the top of this tree. If you're a Christian, you put a star all them bows and stuff, right? You put a a star at the top because it's the symbol that all of creation and the bigness of the world, even the stars in the sky, point to something. The same way that the Magi look to the stars and all of creation and science points to one thing, the Messiah. Are you seeing what we do? We subvert, we steal things. We take things that had a broken meaning and we bring meaning to it. And the reason we do that as we follow Jesus, is because we have a God who likes to take things that look a certain way, and he likes to flip it on its head. And so this morning, we're talking about the birth of our Savior. We're talking about a manger. Now, let's kind of put our thinking caps on, okay? We just read the story, okay? We have just heard that this, there's been this baby born. We, we, we're walking up to this, uh, this nasty place with animals and all this garbage, and we find this trough for animals with this blanket in it laid out, and I say blanket, this, this cloth that's covered in who knows what, because uh, Jesus was just what? Born, and births are very what? Beautiful? Yeah, you home birthers? No, it's not beautiful. It's gross and disgusting, right? So it's, it's nasty, and, and so here's this baby that is covered in who knows what, right? And they come up, and they see what? Now, for us, the question is this. What is it that they saw, and what is it that we see when we walk up to the manger? What do we see in the manger? What's so funny about, about Christmas and about baby Jesus, often baby Jesus is the symbol of God that people kind of make fun of the most. Uh, there's a famous movie that, uh, since we're in the South, I'm sure many of you have seen it, and his joke in the movie is his favorite Jesus is baby Jesus. He loves to pray to baby Jesus. 
And it goes on and on. It's extremely sacrilegious. But you know what? It has a point inside of it. He thinks it's great because baby Jesus, in his eyes, is powerless. And he's able to just, you know, it's just so cute and cuddly. It's just this little baby. It's this thing. And what's so interesting, too, uh, multiple scholars who are not Christians begin to criticize Christianity for this reason. Because we have a God who was a baby. We have a God who pooped and who threw up. We have a God who was born. We have a God who had to learn to walk and to crawl and to talk. I mean, how silly is that? If you, if you pull yourself out of your Christian shoes for a moment and just put yourself on the outside, how silly is this thing that we're celebrating? That we have a God who actually had to be born a God that had to be fed and had to have its diapers changed and had to be taught things, had to be cared for, had to be protected. We have this story of subversion where there is a symbol in this world of absolute powerlessness. There's nothing else in this world that we, we associate with being powerless the way that we do a baby. Correct? Correct? When you see a baby come out, it is the symbol of having no ability to care for itself or anyone else. And so we, we read these lines, and they kind of just kind of flow past us. The Messiah has been born. Do you have any idea how silly that sounds? The Messiah, which is, let's translate that, the, the warrior who's going to free you from Rome, the mighty, the powerful, the God you've been waiting for your entire lives has been what? <gasps> Born? So you're saying that, that this warrior can't even crawl, can't even suck his own thumb yet, can't even wipe his butt? Really? I am shaking in my boots. You have to realize how jarring this story should be to us. It's subversive. And so here... It, is the story of this. We're talking about a vision. Now, we'll have visions for different things in our lives, okay? We're about to be to January, which is the time for what? New Year's. And what we do is we talk ourselves into delusion, right? We say, okay, I'm going to lose 50 pounds this year. I'm going to, you know, I'm not eating any sugar. I'm not drinking sodas. I'm going to hit the gym four times a week, whatever, right? And you begin to paint a picture in your head of what it's going to look like when you accomplish all these great goals, right? And so you begin to talk yourself into it. What you are painting is a vision, right? It's an image of what the future could be. And the more real that that image is, the more you're able to pursue it, right? And so what happens was, is, was we just tried to kind of talk ourselves up but what happens by the second week of January for most of us? Yeah, we all know what happens by, for most of us. That vision begins to fade and what is real begins to seep in. When you're, you know, you're sitting there with your fast food and you told yourself you wouldn't do it and you're doing it again, correct? And it begins to seep in. And then when you wake up in the morning and you told yourself you wouldn't hit snooze before the gym and you do it, and what is real begins to swallow up your vision, correct? Now, this is a story about a vision. This is a story about there's something to see in this manger which is going to change the way that the world sees everything. So, before we understand how transformational this vision is, we have to understand what they saw first. And so, here's the first thing I want to talk about this morning. 
One of the first things we see that, that they saw, we need to understand the way that they saw God. What vision did they have for God? Now, the first thing that they saw, the first thing Israel saw, is a God who had abandoned them. Now, if you guys, uh, if you guys saw the, the series title we have, if you notice, all the words are just kind of jumbled. God is, what's it say? Who asked themselves, like, what the sign actually meant, like, when you saw it? Is it God is, God, come on. Okay. Is it saying God is nowhere? Is it saying God is now here? Is it saying God is snow here? Uh, what was the other one? Come on. Do what? God, I snow here. Ooh, I like that one. God, I snow here. What is it? And so we have to understand this. Christmas, at Christmas, we kind of, we bridge a gap. We stand on both worlds. We, we acknowledge the darkness and the light. We acknowledge that God is, to some extent, the way that we feel, what is real to us is that in many ways God is nowhere. And we, we hold with our hand that God is now here. And there's something about us holding both that makes it real. There's something about, if we just ignore the darkness and try to hold the light, there's something about that that's just plastic and fake and false. There's something that's not real enough. There's something about acknowledging the light only that begins, how do you put this? It's like picturing yourself at the gym five times a week and you're only eating so many calories and you lose 50 pounds. There's something just not real about that. And if it's not real, it won't last. But yet there's something about if we only embrace the darkness, there's something that overwhelms us. It's suffocating. If we only embrace the darkness, we can only survive for so long. We have to have hope. And so there's a place in the middle. And this is the manger. The manger is that place in the middle. The manger is a place where things collide, where things converge. The manger is the place where lightness and darkness are both pulling at each other. And so the first vision that, that they had, that Israel had, was this, a God who had abandoned them. They saw a God who had abandoned them, left them, and he was nowhere to be found. Understand this, okay? The way that Israel understood their God was through promises. Meaning, if we do this, God will do this. If we do this, God does this. And the things that, that told them God was with them hadn't happened. The ultimate symbol that God had left them, see, in the temple, from the moment that they had made covenant promises with God, he'd always given them a sign of his presence. And so in the, in the early days, they had this, this, they had this tent, and they would take this tent, and it was the tent of the presence. And then, and then they'd be, they had the ability to build a temple. But always over the ark was this sign of his presence. There was a sign that God was there. There was either smoke or fire. There's something that was a sign that God was still there. And see, what's interesting about the time that Jesus was born was that most scholars believe that there had been no sign of the presence of God for generations. They would still go into the temple. They would, they would burn their incense. They would, they would pray. They would, they, they would still follow the law. But there had not been a sign. There hadn't been the smoke 
of His Shekinah presence for generations. Meaning no one alive had seen God. No one alive had seen God. There was no one alive who could tell the story of what it was like to be with God. No one. This is how they saw God. A God who had abandoned them. The next thing that they saw, if that's how they see God, you understand this, the way you see God begins to paint the way you see the world. And the way that they saw the world was a world full of darkness. When you feel absent from God, when you feel like God has stepped away from you, it's amazing how it changes your point of view of things. And what they saw was a world of darkness. They saw a world which only offered them pain, disappointment, loss, and death. One of the most powerful kind of testimonies here is that with the birth of Jesus comes this huge wave of death. We don't typically talk about this part, but there's a holy day coming up for us where we celebrate and we honor, we take time to, to mourn the death of the innocents. See, Herod, when he, King Herod, when he had heard that this Messiah had been born, he was threatened. And so we find out that whenever he met the Magi, he tried to use the Magi to find out where this, this Messiah was born. And so he couldn't find the exact location. What he did was he had all of the young boys who were of the age of two or, or, or younger, he had them all slaughtered in this entire region. If he, if he couldn't find that one boy, he's going to kill them all. And so he had this entire region slaughtered. There's actually a shrine. There's a shrine that has, it's full of bones. To this day, if, if you go there, you, you can visit it. There is this shrine, it's like a basement, and it is piled high with bones and skulls of two-year-old boys who Herod had murdered. Gosh, if you're a cup-half-full person, you're having trouble with this, correct? This is part of the Christmas story. No? Beautiful. At the manger, there was light and darkness. This is the part of the world that we have to embrace. If you don't embrace the darkness, you don't see the need for the light. With the birth of the baby who would bring life to all the world comes the movement of, of Satan to bring death. I mean, are you seeing this? Through the one baby comes hope of life for all mankind, and in the following after it, like a wave, comes death. This is the darkness that still exists. Just because the Savior was born doesn't mean the world stops being dark. And that's how they saw God. That's how they saw the world. But the question is, how did they see themselves? They saw themselves as people without purpose, without power, without hope. You have to understand this. The entire context for how they knew themselves, the Jews knew that we are the chosen people of God, and He is going to be with us in such a way that all the world is going to turn to Him. And so the world is going to see who God is in us. Does that sound familiar? It should. <laughs> they had the same purpose that Christians have today. The world should turn to God when they see us. They see God in us. The way we live, the way we interact, the things we do, things we do not do, they should see God in that. And they had lost this. When, when they saw that God had left, they believed God had left because of them. Now, we tend to associate with God closely with how we associate with our parents. As a pastor, it's one of the first things I deal with in counseling sessions, the way that people begin to, you know, kind of project 
the image they have of God is almost always first founded in how they saw their parents. And what's very interesting in this is that we have an entire people who saw that their God had, had left them, had abandoned them because they were bad, because they had failed. They were not good enough. He would not use them. He would not be with them. They were no longer the people God was going to use because of how they had failed him. Now, I've already described the way that many of us in this room relate to our parents. This is a, a, a soul wound. There, this will paint the way you see the entire world. If you feel like you're the person in the world you need the most has, has kind of distanced themselves from you. It makes you see the entire world in a different way. This is how they saw the world. So the question for us this morning is, how does that change with the manger? What what changes this? How do we go from a vision that God is nowhere to a vision where God is now here? And here's the first thing that changes. The first thing that takes place at the manger is we do see a God of love. They saw a God who had come, had never left them, and was present with them in their darkness. I'm going to explain how we know this. Understand that during this time, kings and rulers would create stories of their birth. There would be stories of of their, their divine, meaning these human kings wanted the world to believe they were divine, they were gods. And so even the Caesar, who was born around the time of Jesus, had a story about how he had been conceived... From a virgin. Sound familiar? We'll talk about that some other time. Come on, wake up. Good morning. How are you guys doing? That should be interesting to you. What? Well, he was just copying. He didn't have any idea about Jesus. Never heard of him. And so here comes this. There is an entire practice with these kings where they would try to portray themselves as without weakness, without Ah, flaws, that they would be seen as gods. And so their stories of how they were born, of how they came to being, were, would begin to exalt them. And you would see them as, oh my, this is amazing. And when they were born, they would send, the, the kings and the leaders would send these, the messers through all the kingdom. The first people to hear that a new heir to the throne was born would be those in power. The most powerful, those with the most wealth, they heard first. And the first vision of the manger that changes them, changes us, is this. We have a king, we have a God, who was born the opposite way, the opposite story, the opposite. This God is not being born and trying to communicate to us his power and his otherness and his perfection, his holiness. We have a God who was born into a place that had no room for him. That line, they had no room for him, is a powerful line. This God is born to be with those who have no room, have no space, have been pushed to the outer margins of society. The people who God is born into are the people who the world has said, we don't want you. from that same movie about baby Jesus, there's this, this line he says, and he says, uh, baby Jesus with your golden fleece diaper, he says. 
And again, it's, it's so powerful because it's silly and it's, you know, whatever, but, but in it, it kind of cracks the egg of how most of us in this room see the birth of Jesus. This heavenly glow comes down, and, you know, here's this, this trough that has, the, like, you know, the perfect hay, and this, like, absolutely white, you know, this pure white blanket, and this baby that's been, you know, bathed, right? And, of course, he's blonde and blue eyes, but we're going to talk about that, you know? And, and he's, he's here, and, and, of course, like, his diaper is, like, gold, of course, right? Because it's God, or, you know, surely he has, you know, Pampers best or whatever. And he's in this manger, right? But this is not the story. The story is this God is birthed into filth, into poverty. They are poor people. They have no money. They are poor people. They are pushed on the outskirts. This, oh my goodness. He is born into darkness, into filth. He is born and he is greeted by those who are the outsiders. We have a new vision of a God who loves us because not only is it a God who was born and he's present, it's a God, it's not just that he was born, it was what he was born into. This is a God who doesn't just kind of float down from heaven to be with us for a few minutes and to float back. This is a God who is born into pain, into struggle, into suffering. He knows what it is to hurt, to lack, to need. And this is a God who loves us. This is a vision of a new type of God the world has never seen before. And with this God, with this birth, we see a new vision of the world. They saw a God in flesh. They saw power and weakness, light and darkness. They saw heaven invading earth in this trough, in this manger. They saw the, the collision of light and darkness. God they saw the collision of God's dream for the world and God's despair, the darkness of where it was here in this manger. This, this vision, see, when you see something, you can't unsee it. Have you guys ever had an experience that just changed you on the inside and you couldn't, didn't matter what, what it was you could do, you just can't unsee something? <laughs> How about this one? Uh, man, who's actually been in the room for the birthing process? You can't unsee it. Correct? Okay, there you go. You just can't unsee it. It will change you. It will change the way you see the world. And this is what we're seeing. And what takes place here in this manger is we see a new possibility. See, it's so hard for us because we've talked about these things for so long. They've come across as ordinary. The incarnation, the idea that God, fully powerful, fully God, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipotent, and yet man, broken, flawed, sinful, weak, limited, doomed to die, that these two can converge in a child and fully unite. For the first 300 years of the church, this was one of the biggest issues. This was the heresy. Most people who were kicked out of the church were kicked out for this reason, because they could not accept, they could not process God and man in one. They couldn't do it. That's impossible. It's impossible. But if it's possible, then anything is possible. 
If God would come to this space, if God would fill this room, if God would come to this brokenness and to this filth and this disgusting mess, maybe God will come to me. Maybe if he, will, if he would be born into this broken, impoverished, dirty, disgusting place, maybe he'll show his face in my sin. Maybe he'll actually come to me in my worst, when I'm not my best, when, I'm, when I am failing, when I am sinning, when I am broken, when I am hopeless, faithless. Maybe God will show up there. This is the vision of the manger that will change your world if you can see it. If you just see a baby in a manger, if you just see a tree in presence, you haven't seen it yet. But if you see a God who will come into the darkest place, you have a God who will come into your darkest place. And if this is possible, if this is this is real, then it means it also changes the way we see ourselves. It changed the way they saw themselves. They saw a second chance. The hope that God could use failures, flaws, and maybe even use the ordinary. See, we live in a time of the extraordinary, the, the spectacular. We live in a time where the only things that get exalted are the best the brightest, the most impressive, the biggest lights, the biggest shows, that's what gets our attention in this world, not the ordinary things. But I'm telling you, God didn't use the best, the brightest, the most impressive, the biggest show. He didn't use these things. That's not where he was to be found. He was found in the most ordinary, the most ordinary place. He could be found. That was where he's found. And again, if you're just reading us a story, you're missing it. If God is found there, if that's where God wants to be, if that's where God wants us to find him, then maybe I can find him in the ordinary of my life because I'm not extraordinary. I'm not great at everything. I'm not. And maybe that means God will actually show up with me. This is how this vision of God changes things. This is how it should change us. If God is that, if God will be found there, maybe God will be found here. See, when the heir is born, the empire will send out its message to all those in power. What's so interesting here in the Gospel of Luke, if you, I know I harp on this so much, you need to read the Gospel of Luke, people. Luke, he's the best. I'm telling you right now. In Matthew's Gospel, the birth is announced to Joseph, the man. In Luke's gospel, who's it announced to? The women. Mary. Yay. Good job. In Matthew's gospel, the word is sent out. It's even seen in the stars, those of power. The, this, uh, we won't talk about them, but the magi, which have an interesting story too, they see it. And, and the kings and the powers hear about it. In Luke, the message goes out to the shepherds, the poor, the people who literally spend all of their time outside the city, on the outside. And the people on the outside are the first people on the inside of what God is doing. I mean, 
you get that? The people on the outside of what the world is doing are the first ones on the inside of what God is doing. And so God sent his message to shepherds, to, to the ordinary, to the excluded, to the people that no one even cares about. They are the first ones in line to witness, to see the king of all the universe. I want to end with this. Um, that last song that we sang, there's lots of words, right? If you read the words, oh my goodness. Like, that's like 20 sermons on Christmas right there by itself. But this one in there I loved uh, so much and talked about how, like, the Word of God, I'm going to mess it up, with the name, with the name. What's the line with the name? Uh, he would allow himself to be named or something like that. What was it? Come on. There's a lot of words. <laughs> oh, so you were reading the whole time you were singing, huh? Okay. Here's the gist. That the, that the Word of God, the Logos, the Word of God, the, the truth of God, the very essence of who God is, the limitlessness of who God is, right? All the Old Testament is full of countless names of God, the one who provides, the one who protects, the one who breaks through, all sorts of names, because one name can't cover all of who God is, right? Because He's God, but that God allows Himself to be what? Named. Now you have one name. We name things for one reason, people. If, we, if something doesn't have a name, we, we can't touch it. We can't get it. We can't connect to it. The first thing that Adam does is, is he gets the right from God to name things, right? So that we can have a hold of them. We can understand them. We can connect to them. We can draw close to them. The God who has no reason to be confined allows himself to be confined for one reason, that we could draw close to him. The entire story of God, the vision in the manger, is that the God of all the universe has come close to us. Amen? Would you guys stand with me this morning?